We flip the switch. The lights go on. Globally, we do this without thinking. Hundreds of billions of times every single day. You hear the words power grid often in the news, but few really understand what it is exactly. It's so big that you can't see it in its entirety. When you travel by car from city to city, many times you see a small piece of it. Those large towers supporting three huge cables are a part of it. Their job is to transfer massive amounts of power from the thousands of power-generating plants across America to populated areas. And those same lines transfer power from areas that have surplus to areas that need more than their power plants can generate at a given moment. Imagine Florida in the winter. It often has an abundance of power-generating capabilities, and it helps New York and New England with the extra power it needs for heating. The same is true in the summer in the southwestern United States. When Arizona and Southern California need air conditioning, the Northwest, Seattle and Portland, often have extra power to sell. So the power grid is an incredibly complex network of power plants and transmission lines all locked together in perfect synchronization to bring low-cost electrical power to every area of the nation. But the very thing that makes the grid strong, its ability to transfer massive amounts of power when it's needed, is also the root cause of its weakness. When a large area loses power, the grid automatically begins transferring power from another area. But if the blackout area is very large, the area that's being called on for extra power may quickly overload. It then calls on yet another area for power, and that can overload. And then a deadly domino effect begins. Region after region becomes overloaded, causing power plant after power plant to literally kick offline to protect itself from becoming damaged. As the grid begins falling, the cascade effect speeds rapidly. Once a large area is blacked out, bringing it back up is no easy task. Power crews simply can't go to a breaker box and reset the breaker. Sure, circuit breakers are tripped, but they are located all over the map, miles apart. And those power generators that kicked off lines have to be restarted one by one. And power generators just don't run individually. Since they're generating AC power that's alternating current electrically, that means the current is pulsating at 60 times per second in those lines. This means that each generator has to be in exact synchronization with every other generator, whether they're located in New York, Ohio, Nevada, Florida, Arizona, or California. Resetting huge circuit breakers space miles apart, restarting hundreds of generators, and getting them all resynchronized to a national power grid that has never before been completely shut down, well, it's never been done before. It may take weeks to restore, maybe even months. And in all that time, the electrical power that runs everything will simply not be there. With it all out, there are no gas pumps. There are no cars on the roads. No trucks to deliver our food, our clothes, or even our toilet paper. There's no power to run water pumps. So there would be no water pressure and no water. No lights, no air conditioning, no heating, no internet. You won't be able to buy food or bottled water or your medicine. Point-of-sale cash registers simply won't work. In a matter of hours, looting will begin in major metropolitan areas. Police, unable to communicate for longer than just a few days on emergency power, will be overwhelmed. Hospital backup generators well run out of diesel fuel, and they too will shut down. Remember, I'm not talking about just one city. I'm talking about the entire country, perhaps all of North America, completely and totally without electricity. 
frightening. Well, here's something even more frightening. It is going to happen. It's just a matter of when. People will die. Some people estimate that 8 out of 10 Americans would be affected or killed by this. And that worries an awful lot of people. I'm Kim Commando, host of America's largest radio show about everything digital. Today, why and how we're trying to protect it. Most importantly, what may happen if we don't? And what life and even basic civilization itself would be like without it. reason why we worry about the ability of our enemies to take it down, either electronically or physically by blowing up uh, substations and power stations. Donald Mazzella is a reporter and author and the chief operations officer of Information Strategies. He's become the authority on politics and terrorism. We consistently have hackers who try to break into and take control of the system electronically. And because many of these stations are located in rural areas, make us vulnerable to attack. It's already happened on a small scale when an electrical power substation in San Jose was attacked and vandalized last year in April. In under 20 minutes, a small group of snipers opened fire. They knew exactly where to hit. Power companies scrambled to reroute electrical power. This time, no one was affected, but the attackers are still on the run. The event didn't attract much media attention, but so many insiders view it as the first step taken by someone to bring down the power grid. And it wouldn't take much. A simultaneous attack on just nine electrical substations in specific areas located around the United States. You've seen the substations, those walled-off areas with lots of transformers and big power lines going directly to them. Their job is vital, to take the massive amounts of power that come into cities on the large high-tension lines and step it down to smaller amounts that's distributed directly to our neighborhoods, to our grocery stores, gas stations, hospitals, police departments, and to our homes. That's it. From just nine unguarded substations, a national tragedy could begin to unfold as blackout after blackout would cascade across towns and cities, counties, then states, and even vast regions of America, as electricity would stop flowing to the entire country for at least 18 months, maybe even longer. Ask yourself, how long would it take for order to break down in your city if no one could get anything? Former ABC newsman Ted Koppel wrote a book called Lights Out. Koppel discovered that an enemy nation doesn't really need to attack us with nuclear weapons. As it turns out, the greatest probability is not nuclear. It's a cyber attack on one of our three power grids. Here's Ted Koppel interviewed on PBS NewsHour. We are accustomed to cyber attacks that result in grand larceny. We are accustomed to cyber attacks that amount to huge vacuuming of intelligence information. What we've never had is a cyber attack that amounts to a weapon of mass destruction. And my point is that if someone succeeds in taking down one of our power grids, it would be devastating. The Russians and Chinese could do it, but they probably won't. Because we could do it right back at them. And they, like us, have a lot to lose. Instead, the main focus of concern should be Iran. North Korea, and of course, ISIS. Unlike any other kind of threat this country has ever faced, it can be very difficult tracking the source, the origin of a cyber attack. Given all of that, you might assume that the government has formulated special plans to deal with the aftermath of such an attack. 
As it turns out, the answer is no, actually not. Planning for this kind of attack is akin to evacuating a city the size of Los Angeles on a moment's notice. It simply can't be done. So we have no plans. This leads us to author Nick Rosen. Nick believes that our dependence upon one very large, all-encompassing power grid is a deadly mistake. It's like putting all your eggs into one basket. He has a better idea. It's much better to think about microgrids. Think about a community coming together and generating its own power, providing its own citizens with power, and then possibly trading any surplus power they have with the next door community. There's no need to have this huge, expensive, monolithic national grid. It's no longer necessary if it ever was. Nick is a prepper. He's prepared for the power grid to go down at any moment. And he's been prepared for a really long time. There's a kind of freedom to it. I just like the idea of being closer to nature and of it costing almost nothing because I'm not using utility power. I'm not living in an area with expensive real estate. Uh, I'm not paying a lot of land tax because, you know, for the same reason, it's not expensive real estate. And so because I don't spend a lot, I don't have to earn a lot. Nick never really intended to live this way. It more or less fell into his lap. He found a place on a mountainside where he wanted to live. All around, multi-million dollar homes. He couldn't afford a house there, but he could afford the property. At first, it was like camping. Now, he says, he's living the good life. The kind of technology that's been developed around camping, miniaturization, mobile technologies means that with a couple of solar panels and, you know, a cell phone and a, a camping gas stove and a few other bits and pieces, you can live as comfortably as somebody who's got, you know, the full show home. The only difference, knowing that you can't dry your hair or watch TV at the same time. Nick's home is filled with a slew of solar panels and a few batteries. He orders off of Amazon and even runs his own business from his house a website dedicated to those living off the grid. There's probably half a million American families living off the grid at the moment. Some of them part-time, you know, weekend homes and that kind of thing. Some of them full-time. Some of them in huge, luxurious off-grid ranches. Some of them in tiny houses, much smaller than your home. Because, of course, a tiny house is cheaper to build, cheaper to maintain, cheaper to heat. Not all of these homes are in remote areas. Some could be right in your own neighborhood. There are different levels of living off the grid. It's all about doing what's best for you and your family. Of course, you can be partly off grid or you might have your garden room off grid. You know, you might have a shed at the back of the yard, which has got a couple of solar panels and a bit of rainwater gathering going on and a couple of batteries or uh, something you might just do at weekends, you know, when you because you bought a bit of land like I did and, and just want to get away from it all. But if you're in the town, there's various people I know who are living in other people's gardens. So they've been given permission. They've gone and got themselves a shed from cost co or somewhere like that and they've put it in the back garden and insulated it and they're living happily just like that so there's all sorts of, of degrees and gradations of living off grid but there is one luxury i would not want to live without remember when you're off grid you haven't got utility water you're gathering rainwater, or you might have a borehole you haven't got any way of dealing with your waste you know whether it's your packaging it's un unlikely that you've got the garbage service coming to your door so you have to you know package up your waste and take it down to the local dump 
and with your uh, organic waste you probably dig a dry earth toilet and you have wood chippings or sawdust that you throw down and every year or so you might move the toilet so you dig a hole then you put a kind of cabin on top of the hole and there you are you have your toilet you have to fill up the hole and move the cabin every few years that's the bad part the good part the area will grow great fruits and vegetables a lot of those who live off the grid say it's not about saving the planet or being against capitalism. For them, it's all about giving up consumerism. But we've just had enough of stuff, of owning things, of commuting and mortgages. And living off the grid provides a kind of freedom from all of that. It's a way of getting closer to nature, of reconnecting with nature, because it really matters to you. When's the sun out? When's the wind? When is it windy if, you, if you've got a wind turbine? Um, has it rained enough if you're depending on rainwater? So you end up feeling very close to nature. And with all the modern technologies there are, you don't have to work that hard. Living off the grid, it's a personal choice. And as it turns out, it's really not a new idea at all. Consider the author, poet, philosopher, abolitionist, naturalist, tax resistor, and leading transcendentalist, Henry David Thoreau, a perfect candidate for living off the grid. You might think that Thoreau sounds much like the description of our author and prepper Nick Davis from earlier in this podcast. And you'd be right, except that Henry David Thoreau lived more than 160 years ago. In the 1850s, Thoreau set out to find peace and quiet to work on his first book. He was tired and fed up with the business of life, with working at his father's pencil-making business. His friend, Ralph Waldo Emerson, offered Thoreau free use of a small area of land along the northern shore of Walden Pond, just outside Concord, Massachusetts. Thoreau began planning for his 10 by 15 foot house in March. That's 150 square feet, by the way. The simple rectangular frame went up in May. Move-in was, fittingly, on the 4th of July. Inside, a fireplace, a small table, three chairs, an oil lamp, and a bed. His goal, to reduce his life footprint needs to the barest of minimums, the equivalent of living off the 19th century grid. And it should be noted that from that experience, and with almost no distractions, in 1854 came Thoreau's timeless American classic, Walden, or sometimes called Life in the Woods. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I wanted to live deep, and suck all the marrow out of life. Henry David Thoreau, Off the Grid. Hey, thanks for listening. I'm Kim Commando. You can listen to my national radio show every week on over 400 stations across the country and around the world on Armed Forces Radio. To find the station nearest you, and I know you'll just love my show, head over to commando.com slash radio. That's K-O-M-A-N-D-O dot com slash radio. Radio.